Uh, I'm Miranda Sawyer, I'm your host, um, and I'm here with uh, uh, our fantastic guests to talk about the brilliant Netflix show, The Eddie. Um, we uh, are very happy to have an international uh, panel here. This is what's so good, you know, we could just be sitting in London, but everybody's in uh, different places. Um, we have got, um, well, to my right, I've no idea how you can see that, but you're gonna wave. Jack Thorne, please wave. There is Jack Vaughan, the uh, creator and uh, writer of the Eddie. We also have Damien Chazelle. Hello, Damien. You're going to direct <laughs> of two episodes. We have Alain Poul. Um, I think I'm going to say it in a French accent, Alain. Alain Poul, who is also... Yes, I'm used to that. Thank you. Um, uh, also a director and exec producer on, uh, on the Eddie. Fantastic show. So I welcome you. We'll, we'll just pretend we've got applause. <laughs> <laughs> okay um it's a wonderful show really unexpected i don't know well i never know what i expect when i start watching a show because i never read any reviews before i go in but um it's for people who have seen who have seen i'll just do a quick uh, resume it's essentially about a nightclub in france a jazz nightclub uh, run by a man called elliot udo and it's called uh, the eddie it's also run by uh, another his friend called three who something happens to um, uh, and um, it's interesting to me because it is not the usual uh, depiction of a jazz club so I have to say that when people say Parisian jazz clubs we tend to think back we go back we go back and this is a very contemporary uh, show it's now and it's completely it feels very real it's filmed in a very uh, real way uh, it ebbs and flows with the music but it's a very contemporary show I want to talk to you, Jack, at first, because as I understand, you created the idea of the show and obviously you wrote it. And so I want to know how come you've been hanging out in Parisian jazz bars? Because I presume you're just writing at the home. Isn't that what writers do? You just stay at home all the time? Yeah, no, I don't leave the house at all. But uh, it actually, it's created by as a weird old credit. It's, it's, uh, it came about because uh, Glenn Ballard came to visit um, my friend on my right. I'm reaching across and trying to touch him, um, Alan. Um, uh, yeah, no, you can hold hands. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, just um, bump. Um, and, uh, um, uh, and he had these beautiful songs and he had an idea about doing a show set in a uh, American jazz club in Paris. And Alan took the idea to Damien, who I can't touch quite as easily, um, and, uh, um, uh, and, um, and, uh, and Damien, you know, because Damien's a genius, and, uh, and then Damien got involved, and then I came on slightly later um, uh, with them having a page and a half which had certain ideas within it and certain ideas not within it, and then we developed it from there. Like the idea from a page and a half. Page and a half sounds good. Short, but you know, you get the idea. So uh, Damien, you're obviously, you know, you often work with music in your films. It's like a, it's a thing that you do. So you, and you also have been a musician in your time. I presume that's one of the reasons why you were attracted to the project. <clears throat> yeah, it was sort of twofold for me of uh, um, uh, the music, but also the idea of doing something in Paris. I, I, I have a lot of family in Paris. I, I grew up partly in Paris. Um, so I think the idea of 
trying to shoot something about music there, but making but make it very contemporary uh, was was that that was sort of at the core of the initial pitch that I that I got from Alan and Glenn, um, and that was really sort of what 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 excited me. Um, uh, and then you know uh, Jack uh, characteristically is being very modest in his British, charming British way, uh, which, you know, uh, he, I mean, maybe we had a page and a half, but it felt like even less than that when we kind of approached him. I mean, it was really not much beyond that sort of central idea of the, the, the jazz club in Paris and sort of expatriate musicians in contemporary Paris. And Jack, um, uh, who, who, who had done stuff already actually in, uh, not, not, not just in Paris, but really in the sort of outskirts of Paris, the Paris you don't see, um, uh, he kind of, dove into that world and basically he wound up sort of constructing this whole uh, universe really that um, kind of helped execute what we sort of vaguely had in mind which was basically a portrait of a city that um, on the one hand is one of the most iconic cities in the world and on the other hand is very still very unknown and mysterious to, to, to most of the world because we only see such a tiny sliver of it and so to just try to explode that notion a little bit and show different sides of the city um, through these various characters. That's, that's sort of, um, yeah, th that, that was no small task that Jack took in hand to sort of take the page and a half we gave him and turn it into, you know, eight hours of television. Yeah. Alan, it is very interesting with the, with the show because we're in the bon what they call the bonlieu, aren't we, quite a lot, around the edge of Paris rather than, I mean, we do see the Eiffel Tower maybe once, I think, but like, yeah. you know, we're around, the, we're around the edge, aren't we? And that, um, makes it, you know, again, adds to that contemporary busy feel because we have lots of different nationalities all interplaying in a very modern, I mean, just normal way, in a city way. But you don't see that normally in the middle of Paris, do you? You only see it on the edges. Yeah, I think that, uh, as Damien said, it was central to the conception from the beginning that this was not going to be the Paris, at least of the American imagination, which is, you know, I understand the way that Americans are most non-French audiences have seen Paris on film is the jewel box Paris is the Eiffel Tower. I will mention that Damien shot that shot of the Eiffel Tower on a very long lens from Belleville but of course Netflix used it in every single promo for the show. It's the one <laughs> shot of the Eiffel Tower in the show but it's in every promo spot. Yeah. yeah just so you know where you are yeah. Um, but and, and, and Jack can talk about this too but the idea of you know Paris is circumscribed by uh, this uh, Ring Road, uh, the Périphérique is what they call it in, in front, and that, and the, the the literal definition of Paris is what's inside that ring and what's outside of it. And so we spend a lot of our screen time outside of the ring, because it's in the area that that the Parisians don't recognize as being officially Paris, but it's where the bulk of the population lives. It's where the culture of Paris is alive and vibrant and very um, syncretic. And so. Uh, that that sense of the Paris that you don't see, and we're generally it's generally the sort of northeastern sector, 18th, 19th, 20th arrondissement, and then the banlieues of like Bobigny and um, and Montreuil outside of there is that's where our entire series is set. And um, what was interesting to hear once we started shooting from our our French crew was that it isn't just that. Uh, Americans and Brits and people outside of Paris have never seen this part of the city on film. Our French crew said they've never seen this part of the city on film. And that wow. we, were, we were presenting a Paris that was new to them as well. That's very interesting. I mean, Jack, it's interesting when you're writing about a 
place like that, those Bonlieu and, and arrondissement. I mean, did you go and live there for a bit? Did you go and hang out at Montreuil? Really good flea market, can I just say, around there. But um, did you go, did you move there? Did you become jazz? jazz i wish i became jazz i wish i had any jazz inside me well no i this is just this is just lockdown chic this is what this is <laughs> um, uh, uh, um uh uh no um but uh i spent a lot of time out there and um and i i'd done another show that actually ended up being set in marseille but was but was developed for paris and so i'd spent a lot of time particularly in the outer suburbs and um my dad was a town planner and I'm very interested in urban planning. Um, and there's something very interesting about the way that the infrastructure works there. And when you go out to those places that are just dominated by high rises, and there's like one or two shops serving these areas, you realize quite, quite what state the city is in. And it's where London's going, it's where New York is going. And that's why Paris is particularly interesting. And because of that ring road, it's sort of defined the way they've developed. And, and now we're doing the same thing, you know, that I used to be a teacher in, um, in Southwark uh, uh, and they were closing down the Aylesbury, they were redeveloping the Aylesbury and the residents were campaigning against that. And the reason why they were campaigning against that is because they knew um, that, uh, that, you know, redevelopment basically meant them being moved away. And, you know, that they'd end up in Croydon. I lived in Croydon for five years. I love Croydon. But do you know what I mean? Like, you know, that, that thing of just kind of like the way that this, that our cities are transforming and the way that we're sort of yeah. becoming more and more exclusive places feels like something that's very interesting to explore. And jazz is a melting pot. That's the whole thing about jazz. And, and, uh, and, um, and it was, it feels like vital more than ever to remind ourselves of what a melting pot should be and that Paris felt like a very interesting way of exploring that and how that's being destroyed. Yeah, very, very much so. I mean, I think now we need to talk about music. So yeah. obviously, I mean, music is a completely integral part of the show, not only because uh, a lot of the, I mean, all the, act the actors are musicians themselves. Some people start, you know, a lot of them were musicians in the first place. There's a way of the way the music is used is to express themselves at all times. You know, if they're out or feeling uh, excited or upset or whatever, I mean, at certain points they're um, restricted because they're maybe being employed. But essentially, I'm thinking particularly in um, the third episode, um, where uh, the Amira episode, where people are completely expressing themselves through that music, through that that emotion through that time. Um, it's, you know, notoriously hard to capture music. And I would like to talk to you, <laughs> you Damien, and you, Alan, about, about that, about how you get that feel of being there, in there, onto, onto a screen, because it's actually notoriously difficult. And it's normally done with millions and millions of cameras at different angles. And that's not how you did it, is it? I'm gonna throw first to Damien, and then I'm gonna throw go to Alan. <laughs> um, uh, I think one of the most exciting things for me with the show was the prospect of doing the music uh, live and doing it, uh, you know, th therefore with real musicians. It wasn't going to be um, a situation of, of uh, playing to playback or, or miming to playback rather or, 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 or post-dubbing afterwards. It was, it was part of Glenn's uh, pitch at the outset that, um, that, uh, that this was going to be 
really essentially about a real band, you know, a band that could play uh, outside of the world of the show. Um, and so it, it created all sorts of hurdles uh, for the casting, uh, certainly, you know, to find people who could hold their own as actors, uh, sometimes in complete episodes devoted to them. Um, and uh, while at the same time playing um, uh, really difficult uh, charts. I mean, uh, uh, a lot of the music is not, not easy to play, uh, let alone play, you know, uh, uh, for hours on end, uh, take after take after take and have all of it be perfect, basically, or, you know, uh, maybe you're not aiming for perfection, but, um, um, uh, but exciting and electric and, um, and, uh, and enjoyable. So, so the, 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 the hurdles were, you know, were kind of there right at the outset and, and there in the casting and it took a while, you know, and once, but once we sort of found the band, um, you know, uh, I remember during prep, you know, that they'd be rehearsing their songs and I would try to just kind of show up with my iPhone and just start sort of uh, obnoxiously filming them everywhere, you know, in between songs and when they were trying <laughs> to just go out for a smoke and be alone. And I would just sort of try to be up in their face with my camera just to get them used to the idea of having a camera in their face. A lot of these people had never been uh, on screen in any way uh, at all, um, even as musicians. So getting them used to that um, uh, was important. And then, um, um, and then, and then, you know, the, 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 the goal, which I think wound up being um, in many cases, the reality was that by the time we were shooting the show itself, that there would be not so much a sort of strict line between the music and the non-music and between the musicians and the actors and between when we were filming in the club and when we were filming out in the streets, that the whole thing would feel organic and fluid and messy and documentary-like, um, that the style, which, the style of the music uh, would kind of lend itself to the style of the show. Um, so, so that, that kind of dictated the rhythm of how, of how we did it. Um, so that by the time we were shooting, the actors felt comfortable around the musicians, the musicians felt comfortable around the actors, each felt comfortable wearing a different hat. Everyone was outside their comfort zone in some way, um, whether you know, through acting or through language barriers or whatnot. So um, we just kind of swam in the same pool together and, and, and that's kind of how, how it got done. I'm getting a couple of questions from the Q and A's about 16 millimeters. So not just 60 millimeters like generally, but like, you know, 60 millimeters shooting. Um, like we have Jovi Care and an anonymous person saying um, that uh, they feel like the, the first two episodes being shot in 16 millimeters helps create a sense of three dimensional characters. I mean, it's obviously a deliberate choice. What do you think it brings then? Uh, well, I mean, for me, it was a little bit of a selfish thing because I had shot, you know, it, it's just a format that I started out shooting, especially when I was shooting uh, local jazz musicians when I was a student. Um, some of the first material I ever shot on film was uh, was 16. And I guess so ever since then, it's always kind of felt to me like it uh, fits uh, the vernacular of jazz a little bit. Certainly, it's the format of, of a lot of the old jazz or rock and roll, for that matter, documentaries we were looking at as references. And some of the earliest French New Wave shorts and, um, you know, Cassavetti's movies like Shadows and whatnot. So I, th I think um, uh, we wound up shooting the, 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 the entirety of the series itself wound up being shot on a variety of formats. Um, but the, the, the kind of initial sort of uh, look of the 16 in, in, in the first episode became a little bit of a rough template, I think, for all of us to, to um, uh, you know, uh, uh, to 
a little bit of a sandbox to play within or, or to kind of counterpoint um, as, as the various directors saw fit. Okay, Alan, I'm going to turn to you because, uh, I mean, I'm kind of, we had two questions about, the, about that question about music, but I do, I, I kind of would like to return to it because it obviously it's incredibly important in this series. Not only are we representing people in the Bonlieu, but we're representing a very, you know, you're, you're showing a really particular kind of person and that person is a musician. And the thing I really love about this show is the fact that you, they are so, they can be so united and so divided when they're playing. Like they, they're like, you know, to me, I'm like, God, they're brilliant. And they're like arguing because they think they're terrible or they're like, you know, I mean, it's just, ama it's, it's, it's an amazing thing to witness. And also the fact that, you know, obviously it doesn't mean necessarily that they're earning very much money. What does this mean? The, 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 the fact that these people are musicians is incredibly important to the story is kind of what I want to get at really. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think, I think as Damien said, um, the hardest single aspect of that was casting because we knew that, I mean, from Jack's conception, we knew that we were going to have each episode follow a character. That was, you know, something that we worked on with Jack from the very beginning. And that we knew therefore that Jude the drummer and Katarina, I mean, Katarina did the drummer and Jude the bass player were going to have to carry episodes on their backs. And yet the, in auditioning, we had the, the people who were going to play the band, they had to hit, uh, Glenn's very high standard of musicianship because they had to, with essentially a couple of weeks rehearsal, be able to come together and play together as a band and learn 20 songs and know them by heart and and also be able to work well with each other. So that was a, it, it took a very long time to find a band. Um, and I think it, it, I want precise months. How long did it take? Well, I, because it was a rolling process, I would say it was a good six months. Yeah, long. What do you think, Jack? Yeah. yeah, I'd say that. Yeah, and then and then um, and there were disagreements because there were some, there were a few, just being candid. Uh, sometimes we cast people who were brilliant musicians, but then of course we'd have to audition them on scenes for for Netflix's sake. And although we were all extremely comfortable um, with the concept of working with non-professional actors because we could, if they had uh, a certain a potency on camera or a certain uh, uh, sense of self that we felt we could, you know, translate into a performance. Because um, I think we've all done that before. But um, there was some insecurity on Netflix's part. So there was some locking of horns about about certain people. And uh, yeah, and then and then Glenn would dig in on no, this person. Did you win? We won everything. Yeah. And then when I say and when I say we won, I think you know it's it's also Glenn won because it was really about. Uh, not uh, lowering the standards of musicianship in order to have a particularly handsome or charismatic or protected uh, or uh, perhaps more experienced actor in the role. That that was the, I mean, yeah. the idea that there would be somebody who was great on camera and could act but couldn't really hold their own in terms yeah. of musicianship was something that we had to fight very hard against. Yeah, it's interesting also because to see people, the, the cast, I think, are really amazing. And actually, I think they're all gorgeous. So, like, you were right, you know. They're all incredibly brilliant because yeah. they're really brilliant musicians. And musicians are always attractive. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, thank you. You can tell music journalist, right? <laughs> uh, but, you know, one, one other thing I'll add on the music for, to what Damien was saying is that um, getting to the place where it could feel real, where the, where the band could go 
into a number and come out of the number and have the scene continue and then go back into the number and having that sense of fluidity that feels very verite was actually a, a big technical challenge for our crew. So for Glenn and Randy and their team of engineers in order to make it in the club or in the street um, such that you could be recording professional quality all of these different musicians who are playing at the same time and at the same time have them be able to stop and then talk and then go back into it or make mistakes or back up. It's, um, it's not as easy as it looks. And in, in particular, I'm thinking of the scene in, in episode two where they're rehearsing Kiss Me in the Morning and it breaks out into a fight and they have to keep starting and stopping the song and in different keys. Um, getting that without musicians of that caliber and without the, 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 the miles and miles of cable that we had laid in the club for recording it uh, would have been impossible. Getting that sense of being there uh, now. Yeah, yeah, it is very much so. Um, Jack, I just want to talk a little bit more about the writing because as we go through the, you know, I mean, we, we have a lot of people watching. I have no idea how far you are all within the, um, within the series, but the series, I think, starts off in, has a feel of one thing and then it, suddenly you realize that you're maybe in an episode of The Wire. Like there's a kind of feel of, a, there's a plot going through it that initially I didn't even notice. Like you, I mean, you kind of noticed it, but you were more involved in the lives of the musicians. And as you go along, it becomes more and more kind of uh, uh, relevant or, or imposes itself on the, on the, on the series so there's like there's obviously a lot going on but initially I was just like oh this is great this is all about musicians fabulous but it's actually not that at all is it that must that's a deliberate decision yeah I mean the the, yeah. the, the, the most important thing for us was that we found a way to uh, tell the story of the musicians and tell the story of Paris and to be honest the 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 crime plot was the bugbear that we kept going back to and is still a frustration to this day that maybe there was stuff I could have got better. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, that it was it was um it was a hard thing because you don't have you don't have much space. You know, the 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 point was that we had to we had to tell we wanted to tell the story of all the lives of these musicians because by doing that you're giving a, a, a proper palette to uh to people so they can see all the colours and they can see, do you know what I mean? Like you know how things blend together. And then, and then you had each episode had to impact on Elliot in in some ways, and each episode had to forward the, the crime plot, and it was it that technically that was very hard, and you had to give a lot of space to music too. So you know, in terms of the space for things, it was it was a very compressed amount of space, and that's my one thing with this show that I wish I'd used that space slightly better. But you know, you live and learn, and you try and get things right. And do you know what I mean? Like you know, and you try and twist things in different ways. And do you know what I mean? Like you know, and it's always like in in our heads, the crime plot was always sort of secondary. And maybe I should have been like, do you know what I mean? Like you know, I don't know. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> Jack, it's good. Would you say it's really good? Oh, good, good, good. Just why we love Jack. <laughs> I've met Jack before. I've heard this stuff before. <laughs> 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 this insecurity. So look, I have, um, I've got a question here from, um, uh, I'd like to say a member of the audience because I'm imagining we're all in the same room. Um, this is from Arwo's Earfun and it's for, it's for you, Damien. And he is, it's, a, it's a, a question which I understand, which is the difference in the, how you approach the jazz in the eddy as how you approach jazz in 
in Whiplash and La La Land. What's a, I mean, these, these are very, very different um, projects. Mm -hmm. Do you, how do you, how do you alter your head between each one? What's your approach? How does it change? Um, well, I, I think this one, this one was the closest to documentary, uh, uh, I guess for me in terms of, um, in terms of how to approach the music as part of what was so fun and sort of liberating feeling about, about shooting it. Um, you know, that, uh, both Whiplash and La La Land were very much kind of, uh, you know, visually, editorially composed movies, and and um, whereas here it was really sort of letting the letting the reality of these musicians um, uh, sort of dictate what we were going to do with the camera and with um, um, and with uh, and with the style of shooting and whatnot. So it it you know part of how the show was set up was that you know we were shooting mostly almost all just kind of real locations people's apartments and whatnot but the club was basically was the one kind of set so to speak uh, that was built for the show and that was so that it would operate both as a film set and as a basically you know and Glenn, uh, alan was mentioning this kind of a recording studio because essentially the the music we got there when we were shooting was going to be the music of the show um and so uh, you know, so we'd be shooting in this club space while right behind the walls that you don't see in the, uh, uh, in the series, there was a whole, you know, team of sound engineers kind of mixing the music as it came in. Uh, uh, and so we, you know, just kind of living in that space and shooting in that space, it, it felt very much like, uh, uh, like a sort of concert documentary kind of shooting where, uh, it, except that we had the control where we could ask the musicians to go again and again and again and they often had to do many many takes and the sweat you see on screen uh, becomes very real um but the, but the um but the idea of uh you know the idea that every take would be a little bit different that again that was part of what i loved about doing it live was that we were never sort of constricting ourselves to you know okay because i have mapped out these shots and and because we've mapped out this blocking with the, these actors and the scene has to be this number of minutes this is exactly the version of the song you're going to play. Sometimes we would do a three-minute version. Sometimes the musicians would go wild and we'd do 10 minutes of solos. And, and we would just kind of be there to capture it all. And then you have to make choices in, in editing. But, um, but it, was, uh, it was this very kind of organic, again, documentary feeling process where from the moment the song began, you never knew exactly what was going to happen. Every take is a little bit different. Every, uh, uh, you know, every version of the song is a little bit different. And that's a little bit the, the sort of uh, spontaneity you get from real musicians playing live in an actual space where you can use both image and music directly um, and not have to sort of finagle it afterwards yeah. or beforehand. Yeah. Um, I have another question here, which I like because um, I did read a review of uh, the Eddie, which said that they were disappointed that a particular character, character was killed off early, basically, because he's really, really good looking. And here it says, what's the decision to kill off this character and have that be the initial pushing off point for the series made early on? Or was there ever any version of the series where he lasted longer? <laughs> <laughs> I think, Jack, they wanted to get him to stay. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, no, no. Uh, uh, that was actually in the page and a half. So that, that it's interesting, one of the first conversations we had about the show, because I'd worked with Tahar on another show before, and one of the first conversations we had about the show was we should get Tahar in this show. 
So, um, uh, and it was because he's extraordinary and it's so brilliant to have him do his thing on the show. And, uh, and it's weird that thing of when you've got a character that you know has got to be incredibly vivid for an hour and then at the end of that hour, he's got his, his loss has to feel like a weight upon the show. Um, you know, it's a, it's a weird thing that, but to her, you know, yeah, uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's a weird, yeah, I don't know. It's Alan's fault. <laughs> Alan, it's your fault, yeah? Yeah, it was always there. I mean, the idea was always to have just, just completely set up one thing in the pilot and then upset the apple cart at the end and have the story be not what you thought it was going to be because you thought it was going to be the story of these two guys struggling to run the club. But yeah, Tahar is, Tahar is a very difficult actor to lose. Yeah. You'll, you miss him when he's not there. Uh, but yes, it was always baked in. Yeah, but also that's always... good you do miss him, right? That's the point. Have yeah. you, uh, what are the reactions you have? One of the things I love about the show is because of where it's set in the Bonlieu and, and as we've uh, talked about, is the acceptance of, there's so many different nationalities in this, in this show. And it's, you know, everybody accepts everybody else partly because of music, but partly because that's how it is. If you live in, um, they call them Marshall M's um, in Paris, you live with lots of different people. Like, why would you not? And uh, I was interested to see how, um, uh, different uh, communities have reacted. Have you got any reactions from different people? Because obviously you have Americans, you have uh, you have uh, people from, I mean, all sorts of different places that are within within the club, but also acting out their own own lives. Have you had reactions from different communities? I mean, because what here, one of the, the, these great questions that are coming in, in the third episode, because we see a really beautiful kind of uh, funeral, but it's a Muslim funeral, which is very rare to see, I think, um, at the, you know, at the moment in a drama. Here, the, this uh, particular commentator has said, this is absolutely beautiful to see this highlighted in a truly kind of respectful way. But it's not even highlighted, it's just part of the plot, right? Yeah. Yeah, and that was very important. And, um, and uh, EPS3, that the whole conception of EPS3 was that you'd follow this uh, quite bleak um, reality um, and that we keep sound out of it that you know we'd had these two very vivid very noisy episodes and that the, the, until the moment when sound is able to tell the story where sound is the means by which they're able to mourn someone um, and uh, uh, the uh, uh, and, and then getting that right was, you know, doing a lot of research and, you know, trying to understand how everything works, but also talking to people and getting people to um, consult with us on it. And then we had Huda Benyamina, who, um, who directed that episode, who just kind of took it and ran with it and did something magical with it because she's magical. Yeah. Um, sorry, I've just got another question that made me laugh here. I have a Gleek which is a great name, um, says, wondering if the title The Eddie is inspired by French jazz pianist Eddie Lewis. Alain? I'm going to talk yeah. to you French. Alain? Yeah, yeah, yeah. oui, oui, oui. Um, <laughs> no, actually, Glenn uh, named the band The Eddie. Glenn put together a, uh, a version of the band in order to play and record these songs that he had written that he brought to me. <clears throat> in my office in 2013. And he had gone ahead and named the band The Eddie 
uh, inspired by the song that he wrote, The Eddie, which is what ends the first episode. Um, and so we'd all love to take credit, but that was completely blend. Yeah, and it has a double meaning almost. Like it's like a person, but it's also like a target. Um, it's okay, a whirlpool, this, yeah. Yeah, a question for you um, all separately. Whenever, so whenever um, anyone embarks on a project, but especially like a big project like this, which it is, you have an idea of how it's going to turn out. And it might not turn out exactly like that, but there is a, there is, you'll probably get something better and different. You end up somewhere that you, that you didn't expect. So what I want you to all think about is where did you end up that you didn't expect? Because you always do in a project. I'm going to go to you, Damien, first. Where did you end up that you didn't expect? Mm, um, I think, um, well, it, it's sort of, sort of everything was a little bit unexpected in the sense that, uh, uh, you know, it, it was kind of, part of the conception and style of the show that we would try to be open to those sorts of accidents. You know, even, even you know, when, when, for instance, during the casting process, and, and, and Jack can speak to this better than I can, you know, certain characters that we had always envisioned as one nationality became a completely different nationality. And, and in a show that wanted to be very much about how culture and language and nationality shape people and, and how those things can divide people or bring them together, you know, that, that, that those wound up being really important things. It, it wasn't just about backstories for the characters that would fluctuate. It was, it was sort of would dictate whole aspects of, um, of who these characters were and who their relationship, what, what the relationships were. So uh, trying to just be open to that and just, you know, for instance, in casting, finding the best, just the people who, who, seemed to command the screen in the way that we wanted, whether or not they fit who we had kind of initially imagined as, as, the, uh, as the characters, um, you know, down to scouting Can locations. Can you give me the example of anybody? Uh, well, uh, Maya, for instance, Joanna Coolidge's uh, character in the, in the show was originally written as American, and the whole story was that Elliot uh, and, and, and uh, Elliot and she, and she wasn't named Maya, she was named uh, uh, Kelly. Kat. Kelly. Kelly. Wow. Feels so long ago that I forget the name. Yeah, she was Kelly. So yeah, very not Pol Polish name. Uh, uh, you know, and the idea was that she, uh, like Julie, was sort of in a way part of Elliot's American past in some way and that, and that um, um, uh, you know, that, that, they, that, that they'd kind of come together. Um, uh, and so it was together, they were sort of a part of this kind of expatriate American in Paris sort of community. Um, so that, of course, changed, um, you know, and it became instead this relationship where, I mean, I think some of the stuff I love the most in their relationship um, is, uh, is how they don't always speak the same language. I love that, actually, like, you know, uh, uh, that she's always slipping into Polish and, uh, you know, and, and, and Andre, of course, is kind of switching between French and English and, and they're kind of meeting in the middle with English most of the time. And, but even their English is kind of, you know, or at least her English is broken. And so at the end of the day, really, you get the sense that the only time they really can communicate is when they're playing music, when he's at the piano playing and she's singing, or when she's singing his music and he's listening. And, and everything else, everything that would be, you know, the normal stuff of a relationship in a normal show or a normal movie, the dialogue of it is kind of halting and fragmented and fractured and cracked in some in some way. So, you know, that that's one example. And there were many other examples kind of of that ilk. Um, 
I don't think we'd kind of planned out the nationality of anyone in the band, uh, 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 or we always had placeholders in place and then they always wound up changing. And so um, that kind of thing, I think just wound up basically becoming the lifeblood of the show in many ways, but it's not something that we could have planned in any, uh, uh, not really something we wanted to plan. We didn't, we, we kind of intentionally set ourselves plans that we knew we wanted to subvert and break and, and let go of. Okay. I'm so, gonna... Though it made it very hard for Jack then to have to be constantly, you know, sort of, he would construct this whole kind of network of very, it's a very densely constructed show and gallery of characters who he then had to basically be retailing the characters to cast and to their nationalities. And then once we had all the scripts written in English, then to have sort of dialect coaches and, 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 and uh, people helping us with basically translating and figuring out, okay, here is where we want to slip into Arabic, slip into Polish, slip into German, or not German, slip into French, slip into English. German, I think, is one of the few languages we don't have in the show. So it's, <laughs> that, that became a kind of hurdle itself as well. Yeah. What about you, Jax? So that does sound like you had a few unexpected elements. Yeah, <laughs> what else happened that you expected? But it was, it was all sorts of things <laughs> like that, and it was all sorts of surprises like that. And um, uh, Damien Nueva, who plays Jude, similarly, you know, that we, we always had it in our head that we definitely needed a French member of the band. And so it was like, Jude is French. And then this dude turns up who's Cuban and just kind of like gives you this completely different spirit. And, it, it, you know, there was there was so many things like that that happened that just really, you know, helped and elevated the show. The, 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 a, a challenge that I didn't see coming, which I loved, was um, one of that I always saw it as a show about grief, that for me it was a show about the loss of this kid, that that um, he'd lost a kid, Fred, and then he was dealing with the loss of his friend and that he was putting the two of them together. And the thing that Andre and Amandla brought to it that was absolutely brilliant was questions of identity and how identity could move in and be part of this and how the uh, black American experience in, in Paris um, were, could be something we could explore and really discuss through the show. and that required such sensitive handling and um, and with Andre and Amandla pushing that and with, we brought in this writer, Philip Howes, who really helped transform that. It really, it, it was, that that was brilliant. And working in a, working in a transnational writing team was also absolutely amazing with that. And do you know what I mean? Like, you know, with all that in mind, yeah. Yeah. What about you, Alan? What happened, I mean, you know, with your, the page and a half <laughs> and it, turned, it ended up somewhere completely different where did you go that felt unexpected to you well you know the one of the great things about the show is because nothing was preordained <clears throat> because we had this sense of fluidity in the casting in the storytelling in the way the characters took shape vis-a-vis -vis the actors who were playing them in how the music was going to uh unfurl that it was it was actually almost hard to have expectations because we were being surprised every day at how things were unfolding of their own accord. But I think that uh, one thing that surprised me in a good way was that in, in terms of all the relationships, because um, we let the actors play a little bit, we let the actors have input, um, it was never certain like exactly how much each of the many relationships between our big cast were going to land. But from the very beginning, Jack had always said that the primary love story of this piece is the father-daughter love story. And uh, that 
is really the emotional tentpole of the piece. And but because Elliot and Julie are kind of at odds with each other for much of it, um, I think in my mind there was a, a question about whether that love story would really be uh, come to a satisfying conclusion and be cemented the way we had all dreamed. And the thing that I was very uh, uh, pleasantly surprised by when you watch the show is I think that the way in which the Elliot and Julie story comes together by the end of the show is enormously satisfying. And I think one of the things that makes it so satisfying is that it's alive, that it's, was, it was created with the input of the actors. And as Jack said, with, with, a, with a really trying to get down to the root of what their individual experiences would have been in these characters. And so that's something that I'm very proud of and that wasn't necessarily uh, exactly as planned. That's great. Um, I'm going to uh, scroll down my little Q&As here just to see if we've got a couple more because we've only got about four minutes left and <laughs> sorry, they're all pretty much saying you're all terrific, which I'm very um, uh, glad to see. Okay. All right. We're going to have a little bit of um Okay. This one's from Owen Carbis. You have great names. My name is so boring compared to these people. Okay. Were there any specific TV shows or films or songs or books that influenced your approach to directing and writing this series? Did you have anything in mind other than, you know, your own ideas? I'm going to go to Jack. <laughs> oh, Damien. Damien's got a much better answer to this question. Damien, oh. I'm going to you. <laughs> well, he means I've got pretentious answers to this question. Great, right. you love a bit of pretentiousness. Come on. This is a uh, joke. Well, Get pretentious. I know it's true. We should just be honest about who we are. Um, the, 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 the uh, you know, uh, um, uh, well, uh, the earliest things that actually, uh, I'll blame Alan for this because he, he was sort of uh, uh, referring to these when he first kind of described the idea to me, um, um, you know, back all those years ago. Uh, we talked about Nashville, uh, talked about, uh, might've talked about cabaret a little bit, you know, the idea of something where it's a, it's a, a sort of mosaic of characters who are united by either a single club or a single music type of music or a single, single profession that is musical, you know, that using music as the sort of glue through which to, uh, examine a sort of mosaic of characters. Um, um, of course, you know, so many great television series, uh, have been made about mosaics of characters. It's kind of very well suited to the form. Um, but to use music and, and in this case, a single club uh, and single band really as the nexus through which they all kind of pass. I think that um, that sort of became at the core of it. And then everything else followed from that. You know, I think, uh, I don't think I really started diving into references beyond that until we had some scripts in place and we're starting to scout in Paris. And then it was kind of what Paris was telling us. It's what the locations were evoking. It's what the music was evoking. Um, so, you know, for my episodes, my DP and I wound up looking at a lot of, um, well, Eric Gautier, who's the DP I worked with, he had worked on movies that were basically references for me, sort of uh, uh, Olivier Assayas movies, Patrice Chirot movies, these sort of 90s French um, uh, uh, art house movies, really, that were very kind of, uh, poetic and nimble in their use of the camera, often shot on 16, um, you know, uh, and then he and I together would look at, you know, jazz documentaries and, and things like that from the 50s and 60s um, to kind of, uh, as well as Cassavetes and Piala and things like that. So, so, so um, it became this kind of, you know, whirlpool of stuff. Uda, I know, was looking at her own sort of s set of things. Um, 
And again, also the characters, what was great about this transnational cast was each character sort of suggested their own set of references, you know? So you have jo Joanna Coolidge coming in and it made Uda and me and, and, and Layla and Alan, I think all want to watch, you know, Kislowski movies or whatever kind of Polish, <laughs> Polish, you know, or, or, or Eastern European movies that we could get our hands on and make her apartment feel a little bit like a slice of Eastern Europe in Paris, you know? And, and whereas, you know, you go to Amira's house and you go to the funeral in episode three, that's going to feel like a slice of a completely different landscape in Paris. And so each time it was about trying to almost, um, you know, show how many different countries, national, uh, you know, sort of situations, cultures, and, and by that token, cinemas can exist in one, in one pretty small geographically city. Yeah. It's part of what makes Paris, I think, so yeah, very uh, much. photogenic um, beyond just the Eiffel Tower, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, Alan, I'm going to ask, um, ask uh, I mean, yes, but you that as well then. What, what were you thinking of when you, what were your influences? Well, it's, a, you know, Damien and I early on were talking about um, Nash, Robert Altman's Nashville and, and Cabaret and then sort of moved more in terms of shooting style in the kind of Cassavetes and early Nouvelle Vague direction. Yeah. Um, and another thing that I think informed our style and our references a lot was the idea that, uh, like in Cabaret and like in Nashville, that the music that you hear would always be being played somewhere in the frame, whether it was the musicians playing or whether it was on a radio that you were aware was playing or in a recording. Um, but that we, so it's, the, you know, the show doesn't have score. It doesn't have dramatic score, which is something uh, I'm not sure people are aware of. It's one of the, it's one of the things I think from Jack's point of view that, uh, in terms of the crime story, is it normally when you have a suspense crime story in the show, you score it. That's what makes it feel more <laughs> suspenseful. Yeah, exactly. And we don't have any, <laughs> so we only have the Netflix to do with the beginning of the show. But, um, uh, so, so that was a very key principle. And for me, having you know worked with Damien and with Uda and with Leila Marakshi through the first six episodes, I feel like coming around at the end. I did revert a little bit more back to the Robert Altman model, and it was really driven by the subject matter because I had uh, I had a big scene of everybody playing and singing in the street that felt very Altman-esque. I had uh, the making of the recording sequence, which was very like Nashville, where we turned the club into a recording studio. And then I had the incredibly big uh, moving event that is followed immediately by an act of violence. And so that also, evoked that film to me. So I feel that it was the, the sort of the sort of scale that Jack had written in those last two episodes and bringing all the stories to a close was something that pushed me back in that direction. Okay, great. Um, I am slightly aware of time because I can see it. Normally I have a big clock which is miles away and I need to put <clears> my specs on to see it, but it's right in the corner of my uh, computer. <laughs> so I am very conscious of it. Um, uh, I would just like to say um, how fantastic the the show is it's really an amazingly different and brilliant show it's incredibly enjoyable and um, before we go i'm going to ask that really annoying question of all three of you just to pick a moment um within the show that you're proud of because i feel even you jack should say that you are proud of your work i'm very proud of the show i'm very very proud of this show just not my bit of it but yeah, yeah. <laughs> unbelievable. So please pick a moment <laughs> within the show that you are proud of. Um, and then I think we'll uh, wrap it up. Okay. And um, Jack, I'm going to go to you first. Um, 
uh, well, this is very difficult because I've got two directors sitting here, both of whom direct. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I'm going to choose a moment that neither of them directed in order so that that doesn't, you know, uh, that so they don't hate me. Um, uh, and it's um, end of episode four um, when Elliot and Jude are sitting together in the bar and. Um, and they sit there and they're having drinks and they're very intimate with each other for the first time in a very, very long time. Elliot's intimate with someone that, you know, Elliot's not very good with intimacy and this is a real challenge for him. And Jude's opened his heart to him and it's hard. And neither of them know how to say it, anything. You know, neither of them know how to say I love you, basically. And what happens is Jude goes up, stands, goes up to the stage, picks up his bass and starts playing. And then Elliot goes and sits down on the piano and starts playing. And that, for me, is the real substance of our show. And thankfully, you identified it, that these people do not identify by talking. They do not, they do not communicate by talking. They communicate by playing together. And in that moment, those two fragile men, the way that they can best talk is through playing. Oh, that's lovely. All right, um, uh, Damien, what about you? Um, uh, <clears throat> So it's something that I'm prou proud of in the show that 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 I feel I contributed yeah. or anything. If you do, you do. You can you can big yourself up. You are allowed. <laughs> um, well, I, I you know uh, uh, I maybe share share this with Jack. I sort of uh, I think prefer other people's contributions to the show over over my own. I, I think. Um, I think one way to maybe both answer and dodge the question is uh, there, uh, uh, you know, is, and I'm not sure if I'm necessarily proud of how it turned out, but, but there's something in it that f still feels very real to me as a former musician was uh, um, a sequence that Jack had written um, in episode two, which was a uh, sort of a, a rehearsal sequence uh, with the band that kind of breaks down. Um, this is the band trying to sort of move on in the wake of the tragedy and um, and uh, 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 trying to work on a song and um, and the uh, uh, conflict of emotions just basically breaks the whole thing down. But you know, I think having been in so many uh, uh, rehearsals gone wrong, uh, musical rehearsals gone wrong in my life uh, in various sort of outfits, I think um, I'd always kind of wanted to shoot one um, uh, or sort of be a fly on the wall on one. I had written versions of that, but um, but it had always been, you know, anything I'd done before, like in Whiplash, it had been very sort of regimented and very fictional. Um, here, I actually had a bunch of real musicians sitting on a stage um, playing a song. And so it was kind of lovely with Jack's framework in place that had been sort of mapped out so beautifully. And then this incredible cast, uh, again, a mixture of musicians who are acting for the first time, and then someone like Andre Holland playing Elliot, who's not a musician, um, uh, who's a tremendous actor who is sort of uh, uh, becoming a musician for the show. Um, and Andre had been watching a bunch of stuff of Miles Davis. Uh, no, sorry, it was Thelonious Monk. Uh, though he winds up being as scary as Miles Davis, but uh, Thelonious Monk uh, rehearsals um, and, and sort of uh, side comments Thelonious Monk would make sometimes that's captured in documentary footage where you see a little glimpse of the frustrated man uh, where the music is never quite what he wants it to be in his head. Um, and so everyone just together, and then Eric Otier on camera, and by that point we'd been shooting for a few weeks, and so everyone is just sort of together, and it kind of, I think my job was to just sort of 
kind of give them the word go and let them let them go. And um, so I can't say I did much other than sort of vaguely orchestrate it. Um, and, uh, and then I guess, you know, help edit it together afterwards. But there was something that came out of it that I just loved being a part of that felt like actors meeting musicians, fiction meeting nonfiction, felt like I was back in the worst nightmare music rehearsal I could ever imagine. Um, and, uh, and it was sort of fun and horrifying to watch. Um, um, and kind of felt like what I hoped the show would be, I guess, uh, was sort of that kind of mix where, where the, the fiction can elevate the music, the music can elevate the fiction, and, and they kind of wind up coexisting a little bit where you can't have one without the other. Yeah, okay, great. Okay, Alan, you've got your final moment to big up something on the show that you love. Um, I think I'm gonna ask Jack to help me on this because it was a, it was a joint effort, but there's a scene in episode eight uh, where Elliot has to play in front of an audience for the first time in four years. And it ends up being this, this beautiful scene where he gets stuck and Julie comes up and joins him. And, um, and it is, it, it's a moment that is so fraught because you know from, from episode one, when you find out Elliot hasn't played in four years, you know we're going there. I mean, there, there's no way to avoid it. And yet what shape it would take was something that was uh, a point of contention on many fronts and kept shifting. Uh, and so uh, it was actually, uh, I think maybe two weeks before we shot it, um, we had a radical reconception of the entire sequence. Um, I was brainstorming with Jack and our French producer, Olivier Bibas on the phone. And that was when we came up with the idea, it, it, it looks like it was always intended to be that moment, which is something that makes me happy, but it actually was literally flying by the seat of our pants. I mean, and the, the, the shape of that scene uh, didn't really come together until the rehearsal the day before we shot it in terms of exactly how Elliot would get stuck, what he would be frustrated about, how Julie would notice, how she would join him, and even, uh, even the song, the beautiful song, Snow, which is a, a Duke Ellington melody as, uh, as re-envisioned and having lyrics added to it by, by Glenn Ballard. Um, it, it all came together so late in the day that the song wasn't even cleared uh, by the time that we shot it. And uh, we, actually, we actually had to shoot that entire scene with two different songs. One that had been cleared, that we already owned, that was not nearly as effective. And then we went, we went for broke with the Duke Ellington, not knowing if we were gonna be able to use it or not. So uh, it was a Herculean that. effort by everybody, uh, including, including Andre and Amanda, and including Jack, who was right in there with me every day trying to figure it out. Uh, and it didn't come together until literally the very last minute. And yet it became something that looks as if it was always intended to be that way. So that's something I'm very proud of. Can I just say, that is so jazz, it couldn't be more jazz. <laughs> <laughs> and in that scene are just extraordinary. That, that, that moment, do you know what I mean? Like, you know, how they are with each other in that moment is just incredible, you know? Yeah. Okay, um, I'm going to wind it up because that is towards, also, that is the end of the series. So now you all have to go home, watch the whole of the series if you've only watched episode one, because now you know just how good it's going to get. Um, okay, I'd like to say uh, 
Thank you very much to uh, Jack Thorne, Alan Paul and Damien Chazelle. And thank you all you virtual people that I know are out there. It's so lovely to talk to you. Enjoy lockdown. Keep watching the Eddie and, you know, stay safe. See you all later. Thank, thank you, Miranda. Bye. 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 Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us and remember you can listen to previous BAFTA sessions and podcasts at guru.bafta.org.